This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. The tertiary sector has been in the headlines a lot as we lead into the general election, with universities having to cut their cloth and public vocational education amalgamated into one body. Funding is a big issue as the sector grapples with changes to foreign student enrolments in the wake of COVID. So the question we're left with is, is New Zealand spending enough on tertiary training and or are we spending it in the right places? Are our settings correct? Joining me to discuss this is the CEO of the Employers and Manufacturers Association, Brett O'Reilly, former Vice-Chancellor of Te Hiringa Waka Victoria University of Wellington, Professor Grant Guilford, and Philip Aldridge, who leads the Workforce Development Council for Construction and Infrastructure. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Grant, let's start with you. Um, we've heard today from uh, the Prime Minister of Britain, Rishi Sunak, who says he's going to cut a whole lot of university courses because they're low value and don't lead to jobs. Now, I'm just wondering how that plays into our sort of current view of university education. Yes, an interesting announcement. I think um, uh, the question would be low value to whom. Um, we've found uh, over the over many decades that students and their parents make very good choices about the programmes that they wish to study. Um, they may move on from those programmes to further hone their skills with master's study at a later stage but at the, at the end of that study within New Zealand universities um, almost all of our graduates come out in good quality employment so I don't see that system as being um, valuable in New Zealand I think we've got high quality universities and vocational training. However we have heard calls for universities to obviously cut their cloth but also um, become more nationalised and, and not offer sort of the same courses all over the country. Are we seeing the same sort of rationalisation of this sector? Uh, only to some degree. So we've only got eight universities in New Zealand, which is about right by international norms. About one university per 500,000 is about right. And a lot of our students are local. Um, so if I look at the Wellington area where I was Vice-Chancellor, uh, about 70% of our students came from the local region. And so that limits the amount of specialisation you can put on within a, a, your university because you have to teach the basics that your region needs to support the, the businesses and the communities in that region. Uh, around the fringes, you can specialise, and we certainly see that in New Zealand with, for example, one veterinary school in Massey University, just two medical schools uh, as an example of that. I think there is room for cooperation in some of the areas that are, um, are attracting low enrolments because those otherwise are at risk and the universities, for example, in some languages uh, could collaborate quite uh, effectively online uh, and provide a good coverage of New Zealand, for New Zealanders of very specialised topics like that. But not in the basics, uh, you, d you do need to offer them within each region. Sure. Um, Brett, let's talk about vocational. Um, obviously we've got Te Pukinga, which has brought all the polytechnics mm. together. What's your assessment of the way this has gone? Well, look, you know, um, declaring cards on the table, I was part of the establishment group for um, what was then NZIST, which became Te Pukinga. Look, I think it was always going to be a hugely challenging change process. Um, and I think um, 
my reflection would be it's probably happened a little bit too slowly. But you have to factor in the fact that um, we had COVID in the middle of it. Um, uh, for a while, those politics were actually very busy because obviously New Zealanders couldn't travel. And, uh, and as we often see in a downturn, um, we had a, a lot more you know, student enrolments and we saw um, uh, you know, that reflect in, in their numbers. But it, but it hasn't um, gone away from the fact that actually, one, um, you know, about a third of the politics were really struggling, um, which was which was the probably the main underlying real reason for the change. Um, and secondly, the the nature of vocational learning is changing, because more and more businesses are actually um, doing their vocational learning on premise on-site with their teams, linking their learning to culture. Uh, and that's not an area that historically um, uh, the polytech part of Tipukinga has been um, has been involved with. The ITOs certainly have been. So I think um, Tipukinga is caught in this, um, in the middle of this, this uh, whole transition around learning. Um, we know from our members, we did a, um, we the EMA did a skill survey um, uh, across our seven and a half thousand members uh, just recently, and we got an incredibly good response. And seventy-one percent of employers are saying that they are not able to find uh, people with the right skills. So we have a fundamental mismatch out there in terms of, of you know what we are, you know what we are offering, particularly I think through the through the politics and in that vocational side, and what. Um, uh, and what employers need, and that's why um, there's been so much pressure on migration, because the easy fix for um, for employers is to look for those skills from migrants rather than from our domestic workforce. Despite the fact that I, th- I think um, most employers that you talk to really want to support locals, but but we've just got that uh, that mi- mismatch in our process. Throw in um, throw in uh, disruption like AI and the fact that you know a lot of traditional professions are changing quite uh, quite quickly and requiring different skills, and it really is a very difficult time I think um, in that vocational side. Philip, if we bring you in here, um, obviously you're honed in on I assume matching um, the student input with the what business needs um, in terms of infrastructure and construction. Can you tell us about the work you do and um, how you're you're trying to get that flow correct? So uh, the Workforce Development Council is six of us, and I'm in charge of the construction infrastructure side. We've been around since uh, just over 18 months, and so we're getting up to speed. So we focus on developing qualifications, uh, overseeing the system for the benefit of employers and industry, and really plan ahead. It's talked about you know, what Brett said, actually plan ahead over the next you know, five, 10, 15 years so we don't have the skill shortages we have now, like making sure there is limited mismatch. In construction infrastructure, we've had a, a big boom, of course, over the last while, and it's easing off now, but our um, numbers have grown from 2013, 30,000 30, learners up to 57,000. That's driven largely by demand for labour, uh, but also by government initiatives such as Apprenticeship Booth, which is continuing, um, DTAF, which is the you know, free, free thing. So uh, it's offsetting the cost of having apprenticeships in the, in the first six to 12 months of a job. So as Brett said, the focus is now more on less about sort of going to Polytech or whatever else um, on course, actually doing it on the job. So actually having that blended learning where they can learn at night or in, in the evenings, but actually earn while you're learning is where the focus is going to. 
and that's been increasing. We've seen it over you know, the last five years, and that's been increasingly we're going to see it over the next five to ten years. So it sounds like in those sectors at least there is um, there, there is going to be the right number of people to take over in, in time um, but that can't be said for all parts of the sectors um, of all parts of the tertiary sector so Grant tell us about the funding and how the funding model might have to change given that we have lost all these overseas students. Yes the funding model is quite complicated government controls price and volume for the bulk of university domestic students and so uh, that uh, when you throw in the research revenue supported by government, you've got a government uh, contribution to universities accounting to about 80% of the university revenues. Um, the universities over the years uh, developed another revenue stream uh, of note, which was the International Student Programme. Um, I say that in a, in a sort of callous sense because a, these are young people and there were a lot, m- m- a lot more reasons than just uh, financial that we grew the international student market in New Zealand uh, a lot about being part, doing our part in the world and um, developing Southeast Asian countries and developing friends and relationships that uh, we use diplomatically and for businesses uh, to business relationships as well. So a lot of reasons, but financial was one of them. And so that gave the universities a relatively secure balance between um, fees revenue from international students and the various revenue streams that came through from government. Um, the, the model itself, uh, I would question whether it needs to change or whether the issue is actually just the amount of money going into that model. Because the big advantage of the model at the moment, coming back to your first question, is that the power rests with the students and their decision making uh, through them and their influences, their parents and significant others. Mm-hmm. Because the popular courses uh, are, uh, that they choose uh, result in revenue for the institution and uh, plenty of staffing in that area. Uh, it does require the institutions to cross subsidise those nationally important areas that are unpopular. Um, right. And so that level of cross-subsidisation occurs very regularly within universities. And if I pick one example, I've I've just finished a review of veterinary science, education in Australasia, and that uh, profession, my own profession, is is having to be cross-subsidised by about uh, 33% in Australian and New Zealand universities from revenue earned through other activities. Um, and of course the universities have been committed to doing that for quite some time. So that's the sort of example of how it works. I think you have to be very careful about what you wish for if you if you adopt another model where the, the decision making is not within the student and uh, families of New Zealand. Yeah. What about the property portfolios? Yes, they are large, um, but um, they are primarily driven by two things. One is the research uh, of the universities, which of course you can't suddenly switch to an online model where you, where you don't have research laboratories and uh, creative uh, studios and the like. Um, and the universities uh, do have about 60% of the researchers in New Zealand, and so that's something that we can't just give up and say, actually, we're not going to do any research anymore. And also the need for um, the teaching and social space of the students who come for that on-campus environment. And, and that's particularly important for developing those life skills and global citizenships that we want out of our university graduates. The uh, area of controversy is an office space for academic staff. Of course, um, do you go to open plan and try and save some money? 
really tricky when you're doing higher end intellectual work to really concentrate hard on that top end intellectual thinking when you're in an open plan office. Uh, so the results of that tends to be people go work at home and then you have trouble with your um, with, yeah. with your collegiality and the like. Absolutely. Mm. The government, of course, has sort of signalled, and whether this, this government will last past October, we don't know, but the government has signalled it's changing its immigration settings and trying to bring more New Zealanders into trades yep. like infrastructure and construction so there isn't that reliance on international labour. Are we doing that quickly enough? I can't comment on government policy but there will always be a need for immigration I think because we're a small country we there's a campaign out there for more engineers, consultant engineers overseas so there will always be a need for immigration to fill the gaps. Uh, even with our big uplift in apprenticeships we're still over 100,000 short in our sector so we have to find that labour somewhere that's about partly about immigration, developing our own, increasing productivity, um, things like that. So immigration is part of the mix. Um, Grant, in universities, of course, we are are competing for international students with the the best um, overseas universities. How how are we, are we fit enough for this competition? Yes, we are competing for international students, um, but I think that the competition is actually uh, even more fundamental than that, and that is that uh, the main competition for New Zealand universities full stop, including for our domestic students, is now international universities, and that's because of transnational education, online education. Uh, Citizens of New Zealand can pick up and learn from the best universities in the world. So that means that our universities need to be um, globally competitive. Um, Now they can't be globally competitive in every subject, every university can't, so we do need to encourage a level of differentiation, noting the provisos as I mentioned before about regional provision, uh, but, but a level of differentiation so all of our universities are globally excellent in some areas of work so that they can compete on the, on the world stage. We do have a problem in that we have very low brand awareness overseas. Um, uh, my own view around the idea of bringing back the University of New Zealand is that mm-hmm. we shouldn't try and bring that back. Okay. Um, mergers uh, of the universities would be very difficult to make work. Uh, the, um, the, the benefits of scale wouldn't be enough to cover off the cost of doing all of that unless they have a strategic benefit. Um, so, for example, the Massey-Lincoln merger is often talked about uh, as one that would be of strategic benefit to create a national university in, in agriculture and food and environment that supports the primary sector. So that may, that may be an exception there. But I would take that University of New Zealand idea and think about that as we have in the University of London model where independent universities share a strong global brand, in this case the University of New Zealand, and together hunt together as a pack offshore and together bring the best of their staff together to create courses for online consumption uh, with partner organisations offshore to deliver across the world the best of our best. And so that could be done under that model without merging the institutions. So Mm. I think that would be quite um, a useful thing to explore. Have you seen anything from the the political parties in the lead up to this election that you've thought, that's an interesting um, concept? Because, I mean, often tertiary education is completely overlooked, I find, Mm -hmm. by both, by all parties in in the lead up to these kind of elections. So what have you seen that's given you hope? Look, look, I think um, it's a complex area because when you talk about education, um, it's fundamentally linked to immigration. 
So, um, and, and I think there's a dichotomy even in that subject. I mean, we know that we have a, an, a world-class science system, uh, but we don't invest enough in it. And so there's definitely some some discussion from um, from some political parties, from National in particular, the work that Judith Collins has been doing around wanting to see you know a, a greater commitment to investment investment in the science system and in the innovation system. And inevitably, that's got to lead to making it easier for uh, for postgraduate um, students and and teachers to be able to come into New Zealand. Um, and again, if I reference the recent trip to Beijing, um, we saw some great collaboration going on around cancer research between Chinese researchers and in uh, New Zealand. And there's an excellent paper that's just been produced by the the um, China the NZ China uh, Council just about the benefit of scientific research between those countries. And that stuff's often overlooked. You know, the, you know the the importance of making it easy for postgraduate students to come into the country and making sure that we've got that funded. So, so from what I've seen, you know, national are definitely focused on that that area, which is which is uh, which is really good. I think the reality about undergraduate students is many of the people who who enrol, whether it's at university level or at polytech level in New Zealand, as undergraduate students are doing that because they want to live in New Zealand, because you know that's always going to be a major um, a major um, attraction. For people to en- to enrol, and we've seen that particularly out of markets like India and China over recent years. So we can't ignore that in that in that process. That that is going to be p- part of that process. Grant, um, we'll just finish answering that question about um, what you've seen from political parties. Anything at all that sort of light lit you fire? No, I've been underwhelmed. I'm afraid. I, <laughs> I agree with um, uh, Brett's comments around the the system wide approach around immigration and international students and vocational training. So that's Immigration settings and post-study work rights are, are critical to get right, and I think both sides of the house are tinkering and doing things generally in the right direction. There, trying to rebuild what was a five billion, close to five billion dollar sector for New Zealand. Um, but in terms of fundamental changes, we've seen Labor talk about a um, a review of the funding model. Um, doesn't fill me with great excitement, as I mentioned before. Um, does allow you to kick the can down the road and not tip more money in, um, which is what the system actually needs at the moment. Um, maybe the review will lead to good things, maybe not, um, but uh, it will be a year or two before we would know. Um, so, and then from the from the other minor parties, there tends to be a, a very much a focus on uh, their particular space. Um, so a focus on um, students and student well-being uh, from the Green Party and a focus on Māori from Te Pāte Māori, of course. Um, But in terms of holistic changes that would support the institutions as opposed to a part of the institution like students or or Māori, uh, nothing um, that I'm seeing that's exciting me there. There is, um, it is disappointing, as you say, because universities um, are, are fundamental to New Zealand's um, sense of who we are through our humanities work, uh, fundamental to our economy through our science and technology work and through our humanities work because of the soft skills mm. that Brett mentioned. Um, NZIR have just released an economic report and new, uh, university research is, generates about 8 to 9% of our GDP um, mm. through the ideas that come through from the universities. Um, and of course, uh, about thirty percent, thirty-two percent of our young people studying universities now, and in a knowledge economy sense, is um, the Australian New Zealand st- um, standards around occupations 
suggests that about 67% of New Zealand businesses um, have occupations requiring degree um, level training. Right. Um, so we, we've got a mismatch still between progressing towards that knowledge economy and the amount of young people in institutions. And if I put that in historical sense, that's we're already at 30% of our young people studying in universities, uh, 3% of our population studying at any one time, that's already six-fold more than we we were um, doing in 1950. So the, the growth of universities and their criticality to the, um, the sense of who we are as New Zealanders, our community, uh, our society, our, um, our creative disciplines and our economy becomes more and more important, yet largely it's greeted by silence uh, from the political parties. Mm-hmm. Yes, so I'd love right. to see more attention. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Scott Inglis is the founder and CEO of Checkmate, which provides recruiters with automated online reference, background and onboarding software. He joins me now. Welcome, Scott. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Okay, um, so you were a Tauranga-based recruiter for many years. Where did you get the idea for Checkmate from? Yeah, so uh, my background, I, I started my career in kind of blue-collar recruitment, um, so very high turnover industries, a lot of moving parts. Um, so I did that for about five years. I then travelled up to Hong Kong and I uh, worked as a recruiter across the finance sector. Um, so very much a large portion of my early career was dealing with, I guess, some of the pain points that, that, we, that we set out. Uh, to design and build. Um, I think it was a classic case of seeing something that we thought could be done better with the use of um, technology. So, yeah, that's where it all So, started. have you got other co-founders in the business and what roles do they play? Yeah, correct. So, um, Sam Atmore, who, who's a good friend of mine, he was very much the, the catalyst for me making the, the, the jump, so to speak, from leaving a, uh, a salaried role to, to kind of taking that taking a bit of a, a punt. So, his background is in, in the tech sector. Um, so, he's, he's kind of a web designer by trade. So, I think it was that connection that really made me think, hey, this is this is possible, um, and the other co-founder would be Brian. Um, Brian is our is our lead developer CTO. Um, he's really the technical brains behind our team. Um, I'm certainly not technical, so it's awesome to have those two to lean on. Um, yeah, and really between the three of us, um, and more recently Peter Hooper as well, the four of us make a neat team. Yeah. So you set up in um, mid 2019, uh, and then COVID hit. Uh, what what sort of impact did that have on the business? Yeah, COVID was interesting um, for both personal and business reasons. I had my first child in January of 2020, so he was only a few months <laughs> in. So naturally, your, your life turns upside down and, and being a relatively recent business, only six months kind of into it, we certainly um, saw the, the challenges in the recruitment sector. You know, there were a lot of businesses that, that completely stopped hiring, you know, large retailers were, were you know, early New Zealand, all these big players were, were changing um, very, very rapidly as well. So we did we did see that. Um, we also did quite a lot in the healthcare sector. So we actually saw parts of the business get busier as a number of healthcare providers were obviously ramping up. They were extending shifts. Aged care providers were hiring more staff, et cetera, and support staff. So whilst... I think, like everybody, we saw the initial, you know, hit um, that was alleviated a little bit. Um, but yeah, it was it was an interesting time. Yeah. How big has the company grown to now? Yeah, so we serve over three hundred clients now. Um, so we serve clients across seven different countries, um, most mostly New Zealand. Um, so very much Aotearoa and Australia. Um, but we serve 
um, yeah, clients across the UK, also in the US and Canada as well. Um, some of the notable brands here in Aotearoa would be um, Fletcher Buildings. We've got um, Countdown and Foodstuffs, uh, Two Degrees and One, Filton Hogan. Um, so any particular like, sector, Scott, or is it sort of agnostic se- sector? Yeah, good, good question. No, very much agnostic. And um, we're really lucky with that because I think we get to see our product used in a number of different sectors that all have their own inherent challenges. So I think seeing that we've been able to identify and really focus in on solving a problem that's faced by many organisations of all shapes and sizes um, really motivates us as well. What's been the most challenging for, for, for you as a first-time entrepreneur? Yeah, so key, key challenges um, for me very much been um, learning the technical part of the business. Um, so having my co-founders to be able to lean on um, definitely helps you know, interpret complex things and for, make it in simpler terms for me. Um, hiring remotely is, is certainly a challenge as well. Um, you know, We've hired some awesome people from all over the world, um, but it does rely on somebody who's very much self-motivated to embrace the autonomy, um, and there's a lot of trust in that as well. So that, that's been a big learning curve for me too. How have you funded the business? Um, so early on, um, well actually to, to kick off, I managed to convince my wife to redirect our house deposit um, towards giving myself six months runway to kind of get out there and try and try and um, try and kick it off. Um, friends and family then supported us early on as well, so they came on, which we massively appreciate too. Um, and then since then, it has been self-funded, so we've we've managed to grow revenue, um, you know, hire more staff. We've reinvested basically everything we've made back into expanding our suite and expanding our team. Um, yeah. You were a finalist in the Māori Company of the Year at the annual High Tech Awards this year. How did how did that feel for you? You know, being a finalist. Oh, it was, it was really humbling. I think firstly, I think it was just it was, it was really neat. I think for us as a team, um, you often kind of get busy in the day to day, month by month, kind of getting through each quarter and each year at a time. So I think taking, you know, we were four years in when the awards came in. I think it was a great opportunity for us to kind of take a step back and reflect ourselves. Um, being considered was was awesome and I think being alongside some other really neat businesses that are doing some really cool things um, yeah that that was was an awesome experience Um, Aren't there a number of companies out there offering what you do? What's unique about yours? Yeah there are, yeah definitely Um, I think what we notice in the industry that there are a number of incumbents that have been in the industry for a long term and maybe haven't adapted as quickly to expectations on the end user. Um, We've taken a very candidate-centric, kind of essentially a customer-centric approach of saying we need to make it as easy as possible for the end user who is the the job applicant, the candidate in this context, Um, and our system revolves around that. Um, We've seen that be the key thing that businesses look at alongside when they're comparing us to competitors is a usability. Um, our service has often been commended too. We are a team of people behind behind the software. You know, you call us, we'll talk to you and we'll help you. So there's a number of layers to it I think that, that really help us. But I think where we're at at the moment, the thing that's setting us apart is the evolution of the product. Um, we're adding new features all the time. We listen to our customers. All of them are telling us what we can do better and we're really proud to come back to them with a solution um, that makes the right wider suite better ultimately. Yeah. Have you noticed common mistakes um, from companies when they're, when they're hiring people or, or, you know, doing background checks? Um, I wouldn't say common mistakes. I think it's just the, the uh, we're trying to make it easier for them to do that. I think sometimes, and, and I mean this comes back to the, the original motivation, is it was cumbersome things would fall through the cracks, things might not get done. There's been some really high-profile cases, though, like the Johan Harris case, for example, you know, where people have got away with... with 
making up stuff, haven't they, basically? Absolutely, yeah. And sometimes it is when those things happen, people take a far more notice to it. Um, I think sometimes you may become complacent, but I think, you know, businesses do do invest in this type of technology, and I think it's, it's, it's a really important. I, I read a um, study, I think it was based out of the UK, that had surveyed employers that said within the last year, oh, nearly 60% of them had seen evidence of resume fraud. Um so that's pretty frightening as well. So, yeah. <laughs> I reckon. Um, as this is your first company, how, how do you, who do you talk to to get it sort of advice on on doing the job? Because it can be lonely at the top, can't it? Yeah, yeah, awesome question. And I guess I'd have to shout out to my brother, probably. Um, he's a CEO of, of another business here in Auckland. Um, we talk weekly, and he is very much the one I kind of lean on. Um, he challenges my decisions. He gives me things things to think about, um, and is always there, even just to kind of have a laugh and have a yarn. So it's, it's I'm very lucky in that sense. Um, also have support from parents. It's always good to have parents that have an interest and in, yeah, so but yeah, day to day. Yeah. What do you want to achieve? What's your aim with the business? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it does a, uh, the key thing for us really is we, we really enjoy what we're doing I think. We've got a really good team we've got an awesome group of clients that we work with and you know, I feel like we are providing a service we can be really proud of um, I think naturally as, as many Kiwis are, we want to kind of represent New Zealand on a global global scene you know would love to just like being at the high tech awards awesome to be kind of hopefully considered you know alongside others and and i guess be the best that we can in our space um so and, are you looking to go to other countries or yeah absolutely yeah so we see australia very much we have, we have a presence there now but we want to expand there further asia pacific um is an enormous market on our doorstep so we, we we're very much investing and in, in pointing a lot of our focus towards there yeah. If you could rewind the clock, which we, which we can't do in hindsight, it's a great thing, but if you could, is there anything you, you would have done differently from what you've done? Or? Oh, there's probably thousands of things, you know, if you look into it, but each one of those things is an experience, right, and it's a learning curve. So I think, honestly, looking back, there's nothing I would change. Um, yeah, there's minor decisions you may regret or things you know you could have done better upon learning, but ultimately... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm pretty happy with where we're at at the moment. You mentioned managing managing remotely. What do you have to do different? Do you think managing a remote workforce than when you've got them all in the office? Yeah, I think um, I give I give people as much space as possible, and and I let them make their own plans and determine. So I set expectations, and I try and lead by example as well. You know, I, I myself work remotely, so we we really want to be able to kind of set examples and and encourage and motivate people. Um, it's it's hard. So, like I said, some people don't fit into that. I also have to take on a bit more responsibility in that sense where um, I need to kind of maybe clear expectations around people. Um, it is different to when you can be sitting in the office and catch up for a coffee here and there. So some of the dynamics are different. Um, it'll be actually today, the first time in four years that I'll see our CTO again face-to-face. Um, those things, I mean, COVID restricted that, but I think whilst being remote is really neat and everybody has their respective lifestyle. We have working mothers in the team. We've got, I've, I've got a young family, so everyone's got their own dynamics. Um, but yeah, I think more face-to-face we are going to start investing in as well because I think it's quite neat to catch up probably. Greg Davidson is the group CEO of Datacom, one of Australasia's largest IT firms. He joins me now to talk about the challenges and the opportunities in New Zealand's tech industry. Well, welcome, Greg. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Uh, There was an obvious big surge in um, our tech industry uh, during COVID, and overall revenue for the sector is up to, you know, 9% to 15.1 billion. Has that momentum that occurred during COVID been maintained? Um, I think... 
I, I mean, the tech sector is a quite a broad sector. Uh, and it includes everything from services organizations to organizations that make software products to people that actually manufacture. And so I think the answers will vary widely, depending on category. The world definitely increased its te- tech adoption during COVID, and some of that adoption has naturally changed as the world returned to the hybrid of face-to-face and, and, on- and online. Um, what do you see as the big biggest issues confronting the industry still? Um, in, in the first thing we talked about, I kind of mentioned the diversity of the sector. So I think that the challenges, are, you know, if you're an exporter, the challenges are different to if you're primarily operating in country, if you're working with non-physical products, so if you're working more in the software space, you're probably less hit by all supply chain stuff. What I think you tend to hear most from our sector is a conversation about skills, and that's in part because all those different kinds of parts of the sector have the skills piece in common Um, and we have seen some of the pressure on that ease off Um, you know the the combination of everybody becoming on the part of the global talent opportunity because work from home enabled people to get jobs anywhere in the world combined with closed borders combined with uh, scarcity and focus on that caused the greatest surge in demand I've ever seen in my career for skills in the sector, and also caused what everyone nicknamed the Great Resignation, which was a huge number of people kind of following money and moving around as a consequence of it. Um, I think some of that pressure is eased, particularly as global organisations made decisions about talent. Um, but I think in some categories of skill, that still remains a big one. And then training of existing staff is pretty important too, isn't it? It has to be continuous. Um, There are so many examples within the sector of how skills need is changing that you have to be committing to. I think think if you're committing to a tech career, you're committing to probably a couple of retrainings in your lifetime and and certainly a degree of diligence and ongoing study. Um, I also think we could get distracted just talking about skills. I think... um, There's a big piece, you know, if you look at New Zealand recovering its economy, um, continuing to have sectors that export and redress the balance of trade and continue to enable New Zealand to both import and export goods or services or product that doesn't have the same barriers in terms of needing transportation to get to other parts of the world is essential in order for the economy to recover too. So I think tech needs to form its place in that part of you know, New Zealand recovering. Um, on that note, what policy changes or industry changes do you think have worked particularly well to boost the industry? Uh, you know, can you think of anything um, that's particularly worked well? Look, I wouldn't consider myself a policy person at heart. Um, we've focused on kind of independently growing rather than necessarily needing that to be backed by policy or other bits and pieces of the equation. Um, obviously, uh, obviously the ability to have a continued stream of capable people both emerging from the education sector in New Zealand, stepping into early careers, and also when those skills can't be met in the New Zealand environment, the ability for people internationally to come and you know, see New Zealand as a, as a destination helps. Anything that is done by government to help lift New Zealand's profile in a positive way and make it a place that other parts of the world can trust the products and services coming from obviously helps. Um, and there's nothing wrong with a little bit of good by New Zealand made. 
you know, like support. Um, New Zealand's a small country at only 5 million people. So the ability for organisations to recover investing heavily in infrastructure, in uh, soft, software assets that can only be used here because of regulatory or laws of the land is actually difficult when you've got a small population compared to a big one. So ensuring that it remains viable for people to continue to do that is a really important set of decisions. Is there a concern that about STEM subjects um, dropping off in schools? Because that's quite a stepping stone for a career in the IT industry, isn't it? Um, pretty complicated topic, but uh, both my parents were teachers. So, so look, I do know a reasonable amount about the sector. I think one of the biggest challenges is I don't believe that deep expertise in any one of the core STEM subjects is rewarded any differently from other expertise in terms of how teacher remuneration or even lecturer remuneration at university works. Then when you consider the pay opportunity in the private sector of people with those skills, it's going to be really hard to retain. You know, it, it, it must be a battle for any high school or university to retain the talent in a competitive market for employment. So I think I think figuring out whether that's the right way to do it or whether alternatives are available is part of it. But on the flip side of it, I'm also a great believer that what you learn at, even as far as university, is the ability to keep learning and that organisations like us need to step up and be part of equipping talent for the future too. You know, we've got to walk that careful line between we need people who can be productive quickly enough, but we also have to commit to a degree of getting people ready for the workplace. The other thing that ramped up during COVID was obviously cyber attacks. Yep. Do you think we've done enough to, to deal with that threat as, as we should do? Uh, the best way to think about the constantly evolving threat in cyber is it's a job never done because it, it, it is a little bit of an arms race between bad actors and people trying to protect organisations or government. Um, you know, And so... What I don't want anyone to think is we've done enough, we can be comfortable now. I think it's really important that every organisation, public or private, um, considers everything it's putting in place and is willing to act really quickly in the case where things aren't happening that should be. And it, it, it's become broader than that in that every employee who works for an organisation now is part of that defence. Because example, they're working more from home. Uh, not just because they're working more from home, but also because of the degree of vigilance. I mean, the classic example would be phishing attacks and so forth and be able to spot those rather than get sucked in. But there are dozens of other examples of how people just need to learn if it doesn't look right, tell someone. Um, and then there's the broader things that we need to be doing as a country in order to share information, make sure that all the organisations involved in defence are on the same page. And there's plenty happening there. But given how much it's escalated over the last three years, it never quite feels like enough. It feels like we're constantly running, trying to keep ahead of those who are trying to create harm. On the fast-moving front, um, can't talk about tech without talking about AI. So um, is New Zealand moving fast enough, do you think, to take advantage of the opportunities in this space? Tremendously difficult to be... I, I don't... The, the world is moving at such pace. And this, even, even as, so, you know, the, the AI thing's not new. Automation of this kind's been around for decades. It's definitely hit maximum hype because of the popu- the popularity of adoption of generative AI from ChatGPT to Dali and all of, all of those examples. Um, I think there's, 
let's look at it from two lenses. Let's look at it from the positive side lens, which is we're going. Everybody is going to have to be building skill and looking for new ways to adopt it. Um, economically, there are a couple of pretty clever professors who speculated that the unlinking of um, GDP from productivity was due to automation, and that trend's continued since about 2000. And what we're now looking at is forms of automation that are vastly more uh, capable than what existed two decades ago. So from that perspective, the need for lots of effort to go in to figure out how to apply it, to figure out how to make organisations more productive, government more efficient, is essential, which means people learning it, training in it, retraining in it, as the case may be. There's a second side to AI, which I think is probably as important for us to talk about, which is it comes with a bunch of risks. And it comes with, and I'll give you a trivial example since ChatGPT and DALI and so forth have become so popular. Um, the simplest way to describe them is their plagiarism of the entire internet, right? So all their models are built by reading the entire internet and forming their ability to talk or generate images based on that, with no regard for what's copyrighted and what isn't. What that means, what does it mean for a derived work? What does it mean for something that is produced from that platform? What does it mean when you put your content into it and now it's part of its model? Who owns what comes out the other side of it? And you can imagine immediately there are copyright law implications. There'll be cases that will eventually be tried over it. And that's just a just an example of the many of the things that need to be worked through and will require quick action, not reactive action, on behalf of legislation, on behalf of protecting society in order to ensure these technologies can be safely adopted. So do you think that there's, at the political level there's enough um, realisation of, of that we need to do these things and, and move fast? Um, I've seen, you, you know, if we, if we roll back the clock, we've seen scenarios that caused quick political response and we've seen ones that cause, that, that took probably longer than they should. Um, obviously, the civil service has a big role also in supporting that decision making, and I don't, th I don't think we should just judge the response on the politicians alone, or the civil service alone. It's the combination of the two and how they work together. Um, I, I, the biggest thing for me is there will be times where people will need to act without pause for the protection of, you know, New Zealand and its interests. And I think one of the decisions that you know that all of us have to weigh up is will that action happen when it needs to, and. That, that's a really important thing that I look at. Thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thanks very much. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Smart Media is a media agency founded by Mike Wilson with a selling point of not operating on commissions and rebates and operating with transparency. Mike is with me now. Mike, thank you very much for coming in. Um, tell us about what made you launch Smart Media. Right, well, I saw, um, it's a bit of a cliche answer, saw a gap in the market. Um, having been in marketing, um, you know, I'd held a position as a head of digital marketing at Vodafone, I've been a CMO, um, a GM of marketing at NZ Ski down in Queenstown and I constantly there's there's this attrition or this battle that can sometimes happen between your agency as a marketer and you've you know, it's it's hard to get the right agency. It's whether it's a creative agency or a, or a media agency and for the last probably four years of my career, I took it in-house and bought 
majority of things direct. Um, but that's when I found out that I could have been saving even more in my spends as a marketer because there are there are commissions and there's rebates. Um, you know, usually up to about twenty percent. So I kind of sat back, um, moved up, moved back to Auckland um, with the family, and then just went down the path of figuring out what I was going to do next and looked at starting a creative agency, joked that it would be death by a thousand cuts because everyone can choose it. That's not pink enough, that's not big enough, make the logo. And media um, is more... It's more rigid, it's fixed, it's 15, 30 second breaks, it's YouTube, it's, it's Facebook, it's, it's, you can't, it's, it's channel based. And so the discussions become, I feel, a lot more mature. Um, and it was a strength of, of mine to negotiate and it's something I enjoy doing. And so I think naturally I just said, hey look, I want to start a media agency. Right. Mm. So you have a problem fundamentally with the way it's operated up until this point. Mm -hmm. What do you tell your customers, your clients, um, about the service you're offering to them and the transparency of the fees they're paying? Well, I think the first thing is we open with this transparent dialogue because there there's, there's a hesitancy as a marketer to put your entire spend in front of somebody else, mm. right, because of the exact reason of this lack of transparency and so basically what we say is the best possible way like we want you to trust us and we, w- we would like you to open up your your media spend ideally your marketing spend but at least your media spend mm-hmm. let us audit that let us go through it with a fine tooth comb and then usually from there we, we find um, that for their particular clients or their particular customers that they're seeking, quite often they're not in the right channels or there's a perception that they're in the right channel but the, the data doesn't really speak to it. And so we, we use a saying, we say facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> and so we start most meetings at some point, we'll say, hey, facts don't care about your feelings. Right. And what you're going to hear today might be quite contradictory to what your agency is telling you. And we get that all the time. That's that's pretty much how we open. And then usually what happens is the meeting will, will end and then they'll go back and talk to their agency. And then <clears throat> nine times out of ten, unfortunately, they'll probably believe them. But it's it's hard to be confronted with the truth. And so we're, we're quite aggressive in, in what we... Like, we're, we're dedicated to our craft and we are very clear about who we want to work with and who we don't. And so that's quite confronting for a lot of people. But at the same time, it kind of separates the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, digital advertising has become a much bigger part of the overall advertising mix um, as time has gone on. And one of the things that it promises is more transparency about your spend and and what Mm -hmm. you get for your spend. Why has that sort of not worked out that way? Okay, so the the catchphrase is programmatic um, and... People, I think, they misinterpret programmatic. Programmatic has been around for since Google AdWords, right? So the very first time Google launched their paid ads, that is programmatic. It's basically using software to um, create a better outcome in terms of more efficiency about where your money goes. So it's all automated. So the second you go and put, a, put your uh, credit card into Google AdWords or into Facebook as, as a florist, as a small business owner, you'll set your ads up 
and you'll geolocate and target and then Facebook or Google or YouTube or whoever will it'll it'll essentially like guarantee that your spend is getting spent more efficiently that's the promise of programmatic right however what's happened is that agencies um, were getting rebates and commissions from publishing companies here in New Zealand your I won't name anyone but mm. the likes of this person that person that person yeah. and they're all rebated Google came along and brought transparency Facebook came along and bought a level of transparency and all of that is visible however agencies couldn't make money you can't make money from Google you can't make money from Facebook you can't make money from YouTube it's all visible so then you would have to get into fraud you'd actually have to take a client spend say they're spending a hundred thousand on Facebook and only put 50 in right. well then you start getting into yeah you're, you're becoming a, a criminal enterprise not a not an agency <laughs> so then about I think it was a I, I want to say eight years ago it might have been a little bit longer than that is DV360 came out and DV360 is a programmatic platform but it allows agencies to put a markup into the system. And it was brought about by media agencies complaining to Silicon Valley, basically, hey, you've cut our lunch. And so Google came to the party with DV360 um, and it said, here you go. And by the way, there's an agency markup button, essentially a fraud button, and you can mark that up. Right. And so if you spent, let's say you came to us and you said, hey, I've got 100,000 to spend on digital advertising, we would we could take that, we could put that into DB360, and then we could mark up, yep. unknown to you. Mm-hmm. And it would hide that and allocate it, and then we'd get a report saying you've spent 100,000 when really right. we've marked up. And that's happening. Yeah. And it's, it's a real thing, and people aren't wanting to discuss or talk about it. But what you're saying is that programmatic is something that you can just do yourself directly with these platforms. <clears throat> yeah, you can. You can you can buy your Google AdWords natively, mm-hmm. you can buy your Facebook natively, and you can buy your YouTube natively. Yeah. And they are more efficient than programmatic than than sorry, than D V three sixty. However, it's more work, it's more time consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, the argument is you don't unlock the premium features where you can't go in and buy like the homepage takeover of some company. Well, you still can. You just have to negotiate directly. So right. it's, there, it's uh, we've got proof and evidence that if we went head to head with DV360 using our own native platforms, we'll get far more efficiency. Right. Yeah. I can imagine... I mean, your ideas are quite controversial, shall we say, mm-hmm. um, that you must get a bit of pushback on them. 100%. Yeah. Yep. And who who is complaining the most about what you're saying? Oh, other agencies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, other agencies. I think the the industry is scared. Yeah. yeah. I think I think we're, we're talking like recently we had um, we're part of the marketing association and. Um, Recently, we we had someone uh, from an organisation literally calling every company that's on our website, basically just trying to, you know, wow, to warn middle, them middle, off. middle 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 with us basically. Me. And and I mean for me that that that's that's just entertaining. Yeah, you know, it's just like we're doing the right thing. If we're ruffling that many feathers, and at the end of the day, people just need to kind of chill and and look in the mirror and go. Hey, if you're committing fraud, you're committing fraud, mm. and and it's 
and people don't that word like oh my gosh but it's yeah. it's if you if you're misleading your clients and you're putting schedules in front of them that have markups and hidden rebates and hidden commissions that's fraud um, on the other hand, you could be a disruptor of a mm-hmm. of a sector that's working quite well. Thanks very much. Um, <laughs> we don't need you sort of <laughs> creating problems, but yeah. you are a disruptive force. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're a very disruptive force. Yeah, yeah. and that's why I mean we, we went out with the tagline, um, the media unagency. Yeah, and it's not that we don't like the industry. I think there's a lot of colour. There's a lot of fun. Yeah, but it's 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 not. We're not here to like poo-poo the industry, we're here to say, look, there needs to be some audit here. There needs to be some integrity. We are the last, we're one of the last industries to go through regulation, you know, and there's, and we've got to face the music. There's untold parties still, there's still untold junkets, there's trips to Fiji, there's trips overseas and to other regions. And it's just like, come on guys, like we've, we've gone through COVID, we've gone through tough times and there has to be a level of accountability and some certainty for people. And as a marketer, that's the thing that annoyed me the most was this lack of transparency and this lack of honesty and talking to people face to face and having, you know, that feeling when someone's lying to you and you you know that they're lying, but you can't put your finger on it. That's what it felt like for me working with my agencies every day. And so I think we're wanting to come in and do the opposite of that and bring some level of, of peace and comfort and work with people that end of the day want a good work-life balance. We don't need to be working till midnight and in the weekends. Marketing can be a mature business that is well-planned and, and I think that's another side of the coin is that that's where we're coming in disrupting, saying that we're, we're wanting to have our campaigns organised um, like a week to four weeks out. And that's been unheard of because the Friday 5.30pm phone call has become the norm for industry for a lot of people. And we're wanting to bring, again, some business acumen to marketing and to media. That's great. Mike, Mm. thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Restraints of trade look set to be severely restricted if a bill currently being considered becomes law. Buddle Finlay Special Counsel Sean Brooks joins me from Christchurch to talk about the new proposals. Sean, thanks for joining us. Now, tell us about the Employment Relations Restraint of Trade Amendment Bill, please. Um, yeah, sure. So this is a members' bill that uh, has uh, just had its first reading yesterday. And what it does is, as you've suggested, it severely restricts the use of restraints of trade in New Zealand. It does this in a number of ways, uh, really three ways. So firstly, what it's going to do is set a minimum wage that you've got to have before a restraint of trade will have can be used for you. So your employer, if you're an employee, will have to pay you at least three times the minimum wage before you can have a restraint in your agreement. So currently, if you're looking at an annual salary, you're going to have to be earning on the current minimum wage at least 141,000 per year before you can have a restraint of trade apply to your employment. Can I just stop you right there and just ask you, do people under that amount often get hit with restraints of trade? Because isn't that normally for very high-end sort of white-collar professional types? 
Yeah, you would think so, but um, no, actually most of the restraints of trade that uh, we come across are for people in that lower or middle income bracket. So uh, it is very common for uh, people to have a restraint of trade, and that might be a restraint that stops them from going and working for a competitor, which is what most of us think about when we think of a restraint, but it's also a restraint that will stop people from soliciting the clients or customers of their employer and from soliciting the staff. So encouraging other staff to come and work for them or for their new employer. Right. So, sorry, I interrupted you. So um, the um, the new law would suggest that someone has to be paid three times the minimum wage. What are the other two um, things that are mainly changing about the bill? If the employment comes to an end and you've got a restraint of trade, the employer is going to need to pay the employee at, at least half of their weekly income for the length of the restraint. So let's say the restraint is six months, then essentially the employer is going to have to pay the employee three months worth of their wages in consideration for that restraint. Wow. So that means even if the person gets another job and it's nothing to do and it doesn't break their restraint of trade, they still get this extra payment on top of that? Yes, well, that that's the consideration for the, the restraint and they, the person wouldn't be able to get a job that competed anyway because the, the, the restraint would be enforceable. Right. And then the third thing that sort of ties in with that is the maximum length of a restraint uh, would be six months. So you couldn't have a restraint of 12 months or two years, which we commonly see. Right. So this, this bill is addressing a problem that is a real problem for employees. Uh, in my view, yes, uh, it, it is something that we see a lot of it, and I think we've seen a lot of it recently with unemployment being so low. So there's real competition between employers um, for employees. Right. So these are routinely put into employment agreements. Um, I mean, if employees agree to that, um, why does it become such an issue? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think it becomes an issue because people don't necessarily understand the terms of their employment when they sign uh, the agreement. They may not understand the scope and the breadth of, of the restraint, or they might be in a position that they don't really have the bargaining power to change those agreements. So. They might be offered a, a employment agreement that has quite a restrictive restraint of trade um, and the employer says, well, take it or leave it. If you don't have a lot of bargaining power and you need the employment, then you may accept that, uh, that role regardless of the fact that it's got what seems like a very onerous restraint of trade. If this bill becomes law, and we don't know if it will because it may not last the, the general election, but if it w was to, I mean, it would kind of, um, f the amount of usage of restraints of trade would fall away. But do you think there are cases where it is legitimate to use a restraint of trade? 
Uh, yes, absolutely. There will be times when a restraint is appropriate. But what this bill will do, I think, is make sure employers really think about a restraint and, and how much it's worth and whether they actually do in fact need it. And if they do, then they're going to understand what the price of that restraint is. I think it was interesting that you wrote about um, there being better ways than restraints of trade to sort of keep employees on side. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? So I think restraints sometimes can be used as a uh, blunt tool and uh, they can be used almost in a punitive way. So an employee feels that they have to stay because they can't go and earn a living and they've got financial commitments that mean they need to stay, where there might be other ways to better retain your staff. And there are there are a lot of ways employers can look to retain their staff. The obvious one is remuneration and keeping your remuneration, your pay and your other terms of employment competitive in the market. And if they start dropping below what other businesses are, are offering, then that employment's going to be less interesting or, or th there are going to be incentives for people to look to move. But there are other things employers can do as well, um, making sure that there are career pathways for employees so that, that employees know that they've got a future with, with the organisation because often people will move as part of their career progression. Having mentorship and training um, so people can see that the organisation is interested in their development and their career and providing employees with meaningful work. Right. So, Sean, we, we uh, referred back to the general election. Um, by what you were saying before, um, National and ACT are not very keen on this change. Why is that? What What's their philosophical disagreement with it? From what I could see from the debates, um, National was of the view that it would effectively do away with restraints altogether because having a ceiling of 141,000 was far too high and it would mean that approximately 95% of employees wouldn't be able to have a restraint to trade and that was described as using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. So I think there was, from National, there was an acceptance that actually there might be an issue here but they thought that the bill went too far. I think it was that threshold that was going too far and ACT had similar views. I think both of them thought that this was going to be overly onerous on employers and small businesses. Right. That's great, Sean. Thank you very much for talking to NBR. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.